March 27th, 1890, Leavenworth, Kansas. A local man places a personal ad in the Leavenworth Times reporting his wife missing. Soon, her gruesome fate will trigger memories of the infamous Jack the Ripper murders, which shocked London just two years before. The sensational case will make headlines all over America. Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. This is part two of the case of the Leavenworth Ripper. If you haven't listened to part one, well, you probably won't know what's going on. So maybe you should go back and listen to it. But in case you just don't want to, here's a quick recap. The body of Teresa Metman is found on March 28, 1890 at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas on the bank of the Missouri River. Her body has been cut into three pieces. The cause of death was a single gunshot to the head at close range. Her husband, John, is immediately arrested and charged with the murder. However, a few days later, he is released. Teresa and John's daughter, Mary, now sits in jail. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of horrific violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murder. You may hear the word prostitute. You will not hear profanity. Host may hurt listeners' feelings, give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. You should also know that I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or podcasting. I may think I'm an expert in lots of things, but truly, I'm just a true crime fan who researches and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me about true crime with you. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about a grisly murder. As we've said, Mary moved back in with her parents and brother when her husband was killed a few years ago. She's not yet 30 and has two young children, a boy and a girl. Their ages vary in my sources, but I think one is school age and one is about four or five. Her married name is Routzahn, R-O-U-T-Z-A-H-N, or sometimes R-A-U-T-Z-A-H-N, which in German would be pronounced the same, Routzahn. She is described in the papers as having a trim figure, blonde hair, and blue eyes. She is a longtime acquaintance of Mrs. Doan, wife of the town marshal. After she is in her cell for a few days, Mary asks her friend to visit the jail. I wonder if what really happened is that the marshal asked his wife to visit Mary to get her to tell what she knows about the murder. Regardless, Mary spills her guts to the marshal's wife. Whether she's telling the truth is up for debate. What Mary has to say is not what anyone was expecting. That is, my father killed my mother and cut her up and I helped. On the contrary, Mary confides that she and local married man, Charles Benson, have been having an affair for three years. She claims that Benson is the real murderer. Charles Albert Benson, 40-ish, 
is a machinist employed in Kansas City, where he conveniently keeps a room to stay in during the work week. He is married to Johanna and father to 19-year-old Rosa. The Bensons are also German immigrants who live in Leavenworth at 912 Grand Avenue, several blocks south of the Metman home. They have been in Leavenworth for about eight years. They socialize with the Metmans frequently. There is a drawing of him in one of the papers, and he looks perfectly ordinary, a little plump, with a huge walrus mustache. His wanted poster will say, 42 years old, 5 feet 2, mustache and goatee, short legs, is German, but looks like French, brown hair and blue eyes. He is reportedly very charming and lively and often entertains doing magic tricks. He and Teresa are great friends with common interests in mesmerism and spiritualism. They are so close that there are rumors that Charles and Teresa are having an affair. Mary claims that both she and her mother were, quote, completely under his power, unquote. Unfortunately, he is self-indulgent, a womanizer, lazy, and dishonest, and possibly much worse. There are some sinister stories about him. A local farm wife, Mrs. Krona, who came with Benson's father from Germany to Leavenworth, tells this about Benson. The father had loaned her the $200 for her passage. When they arrived to stay with Johanna and Charles, she disliked him so much that she immediately advertised for a husband. That was how she met Mr. Krona, who quickly married her. The gossip in the old country was that Benson fled Germany because he had blown up his sister's house with her two children in it. I'm thinking that is a little far-fetched. After all, the father is coming to visit Charles. But the rest of what she says is quite believable based on what we find out about him later. Mrs. Cronus says that Benson took all his father's money and the travel money she had paid back to him. Friends had to raise the money to send the father back home to Germany. She also says Charles beat his wife and daughter and even tried to get Rosa to steal from her employer, Mr. Foster. He's the dry goods merchant whose house Teresa visited the night of her murder. In addition, he was in the habit of taking off for months to go, air quotes, work somewhere like Arkansas or Texas or back east, where he would take up with a woman and pretend to marry her and take all her money. So far, he had always come back to Johanna when his cons ran their course. Certainly, Charles Benson is a likable man, but not a man of sterling character. According to Mary, the affair began when she moved in with her parents after her husband, Mr. Rautzon, was killed by lightning. Mary claims Benson ominously predicted this would happen when she met him earlier on a visit home to see her parents. She tries to infer that he fell so deeply in love with her at first sight that he somehow psychically killed her husband. Mary sometimes plays house at Benson's quarters in Kansas City, sometimes for two or three weeks. John testifies later that whenever he asked where Mary was, Teresa would cover for her, saying she was working in the city to make extra money for the family. I have to question that a little, knowing Teresa and Mary's relationship. The couple is known in Kansas City as Mr. and Mrs. Richard Waldo. 
Mary flat out accuses Benson of the murder. She claims that her mother was threatening to expose the affair, and so Benson decided to get rid of her and get the gold from the house so he could elope with Mary. Now, at the inquest, Mary reported that her brother had $440 in gold, which was kept in her bureau drawer. She testified that she noticed the money and her mother disappeared at the same time. Of course, that led to the robbery gone wrong speculation, which took the heat off John a little bit. Now she's telling Mrs. Jones she lied about that. Her story is that Benson showed up at her house unannounced on the Monday night after the murder. She asked him if he had seen her mother, that she was missing. He was very harsh with her and forced her to steal the money from Henry and give it to him. She was terrified about what he might have done. She insists that she had no part in the murder. She went along because she feared for her own life. Benson had told her that she was, quote, the 11th woman he had had, and he would send her where he sent the others, unquote. What a drama queen. Now, of course, Mrs. Doan tells her husband all of this, and the newspapers find out, and by April 10th, 1890, everyone is looking at Benson as the prime suspect. After this, a lot of the case is she said, he said, and this paper said, that paper said, so now might be a good time to review a little bit. This is my take about what's happening around the time of the murder. On the murder weekend, everyone's movements are clear up to when Teresa disappears. Benson worked in Kansas City all week. Saturday after work, he took the train from Kansas City to Leavenworth. He stopped by the Metman house to meet Mary. This is the night before the murder. They dallied for a while down in the basement until her mother came home about 9 or 10 p.m. They talked with Teresa for a bit and she went to bed. He stayed till about 1 or 2 a.m. and went home. Benson spent Sunday at home. Johanna and Rosa confirm that he was home all day and left about 5 p.m. saying he was going to catch the 6 o'clock train back to Kansas City. Benson says that is what he did. After he got there, he met up with a few buddies to have some beers before he went off to bed. Benson's rooming house in Kansas City was right down by the Missouri River near 9th and Mulberry. If you are familiar with Kansas City, the area is called the West Bottoms. Nowadays, the West Bottoms has a trendy nightlife scene and is home to several popular Halloween haunted house attractions like The Beast and Edge of Hell. Benson reports that he had a toothache on Monday and didn't go to work. He says he received a note from Mary asking him to come and see her that night. I'm not exactly sure how that would work. I gather that you could send a note to somebody on the train in the morning and they would get it in the afternoon or maybe a telegram, not really sure. Mary denies this and no note is ever found. Charles says that he felt well enough to go back to Leavenworth. Mary agrees that he did come to see her on Monday night. Benson says he then took the 4.48 a.m. train back to Kansas City. Listeners, I was surprised that people travel back and forth between Leavenworth and Kansas City so much. The train service must have been reliable and cheap in 1890. After that, Benson worked the rest of the week. It is confirmed by his boss that he worked Tuesday through Saturday. He came back home Saturday afternoon. He says that he found out about the murder and John's arrest in the newspapers and was shocked and horrified. 
Johanna and Rosa confirm this and even say he gave them a little bit of money from his pay. That Sunday is the day of Teresa's funeral. Nobody ever mentions whether the Benson family went to the funeral or not. What he does after he leaves his wife and daughter on Sunday is a little murky. They think he's going to take the train back to Kansas City like he always does to work the rest of the week. What we know for sure is that he didn't work that week after the body is discovered. He's up in St. Joseph, Missouri, about 50 or 60 miles away, and doesn't tell anybody where he is as far as we know. He later claims that he was looking for work in St. Joe because he had been laid off from his job in Kansas City. Not true. This is the first week of April. Mary is arrested on the 6th, the Friday after the body is found. Charles Benson's name starts to appear in the media a few days later. Sometime soon after that, Benson goes to Kansas City to get his stuff, write to his wife, and take off for parts unknown. On the way out of town, Benson mails two letters to his wife. This is translated from the German. Mrs. Benson, I write to notify you that I must leave Kansas City. I see from the papers that my name is connected with awfulness. I am quite innocent of the whole affair. The lying woman who accuses me of this wants to lay this on my shoulders. Now farewell. We shall never meet again. But wait, there's more. He goes on to tell her where his lodgings are and that she and Rosa should collect all his things. In his second letter, he writes, the truth is the mother was in her way for a long time and also you, Mrs. Benson, because she could enjoy better her hours of love. She is a miserable snake. One should hear Mrs. Routson, then you will know everything. Now she can better live in disgrace with her old man, Metman. Again, with the incest. So by the middle of April, Benson is in the wind. The prevailing theory is that he is hiding out in Indian territory or back east somewhere. When Johanna gets these letters, she notifies the police and they accompany her to Kansas City with Rosa to collect evidence and clear out the place. They find a little furniture, some papers written in German, women's clothing, and several saw blades. In the meantime, all the sordid details of the affair are discussed in town. Mary sits in jail. John loses his job but is not in jail anymore. Things are kind of on hold pending the capture of Benson. The reward for his capture rises to $500. There are rumors that Mary's pregnant, she's not, and will soon be let out. But not much really changes with the case until October of that year. A package arrives in Camden, New Jersey. It doesn't have enough postage on it. The postmaster opens the package, I guess they're allowed to do that, and finds valuable jewelry, a $20 gold piece, and some newspaper clippings about a large reward for a man wanted in Leavenworth, Kansas. It turns out the package was mailed by a woman in Kansas City. I'm sure nobody was surprised Benson had another woman in Kansas City. The jewelry belongs to the Fosters, the Metman's friends. It was stolen from their house long before the murder. The clerk at the post office recognizes Charles as the wanted man and sets up a sting operation with the police. The postmaster contacts the addressee to come pay the postage due and pick up the package. 
The police are supposed to be watching the post office to arrest Benson, but they get there late, and the postman has to do some improvising to keep Benson there without making him suspicious. But it all works out, and Charles admits that he's the wanted man and says he doesn't mind going back to Kansas because he's innocent. Arrangements are made with the Leavenworth police, and he's back in town on October 11th. Benson and his guard are a little nervous when they get there. The crowd waiting for them at the train station is estimated at over a thousand people. Lynchings are not unheard of in Leavenworth in 1890. But all goes well, and soon Benson is sitting in the same jail as his lover, Mary Rautzon. He gives an interview in jail and throws her under the bus, saying she told him she wanted him to get rid of his wife and help her kill Teresa and then Henry for his railroad insurance policy. Then she could inherit everything when her father died, and they could be together without dishonor. On October 17th, a grand jury is convened to look at charging Benson, John, and Mary with murder. This was a federal grand jury, not a local one. The maximum penalty is execution. There is a contention that the murder was committed on Leavenworth, a federal reservation. So the trial should be a federal one. This will turn out to be a major sticking point in the case. The defense tries to show that the crime was committed at the Metman House, not on government property. So the case should be tried by the county attorney, Mr. Atwood. Under those circumstances, the maximum sentence is life in solitary confinement. All the papers report this same thing, and it is a big issue in the legal proceedings, but I can't fully explain that. Kansas has the death penalty in 1890. It's abolished in 1907 and then reinstated in the 30s. The last executions in Kansas were hangings in 1965. So I don't see why there wouldn't be death sentences no matter what the jurisdiction is, but that certainly seems to be the case for some reason. The defense fails to get the trial moved, and the grand jury quickly returns indictments against Charles and Mary, not John. John is released again. Mary and Benson are scheduled for separate trials in November. However, most people don't really expect the trial to be until the following year. They're right. Motions are filed. Both sides look for more witnesses and evidence. Johanna Benson's name is among 31 cases of matrimonial mistakes to be adjudicated on May 7, 1891. Matrimonial mistakes, that's kind of a nice way to say divorce, don't you think? Finally, on the 4th of June, 1891, Charles Albert Benson pleads not guilty to the murder of Teresa Metman, and his trial begins in Leavenworth. The trial is a sensation. The papers report that even women are coming to watch the trial. It's presided over by a federal judge, but the trial is in Leavenworth at the county courthouse. The lawyers on both sides are well thought of. The federal prosecutor is Mr. Aidy, and Benson's defense attorney is retired judge Mr. Webb. There are no big Perry Mason moments, no if it doesn't fit, you must acquit stuff in the trial. It's interesting to read about, but predictable. The prosecution's main points are that Benson is a terrible person who cheated on his wife, stole from everyone who trusted him, murdered for lust and money, and then showed his guilt by fleeing. 
Mr. Aidy puts in evidence the saw blades found in Benson's room in Kansas City. A doctor testifies that the blades match the marks found on the bones of Teresa's spine. Benson's boss in Kansas City testifies that Benson had borrowed a saw from him on the Tuesday after the murder and then returned it sometime later, which is somewhat incriminating. He produces the saw for the prosecutor to show that the blades in evidence fit that saw. Further, he says that Benson was not laid off. He just didn't ever come back to work the Monday after the body was found. The murder scenario they lay out is that Benson lured Teresa to meet him at the spot where they found the evidence, like the false teeth. Knocked her unconscious, dismembered her, put her torso and left leg in the river, but got scared off before he could put the last sack in the river. Monday, he forced poor Mary to steal the rest of the money from the house. He planned to get the rest of the evidence that week what was foiled when the body was found. It's not a bad case, especially if you believe Mary. They play on the jury's sympathies by calling Johanna and Rosa Benson to the stand. Poor Johanna speaks no English, and Rosa has to translate for her. She won't make eye contact with her husband and sobs most of the time, especially when the letters Charles wrote from Kansas City are read out. But all in all, she and Rosa don't really add anything to the case. Mary's testimony is, of course, the most dramatic. She cries a lot and says what she's been saying all along. I'm innocent. I had no idea that Benson would actually murder anybody. And even if I did, I'm just a poor, frail woman afraid for my life and my children. It was all Benson. She denies that Teresa already had candy or peanuts on her the day of her murder. She even throws her mother under the bus to make Benson look as bad as possible, saying she knows that he was having an improper relationship with her mother, and they often met up at, surprise, the edge of the military reservation where all the evidence was found. She says she never asked Benson to come see her on Monday after the murder. Listeners, I think just the fact that her lawyer allows her to testify tells us all we need to know about what will happen to Mary. Pretty much nothing. Benson's lawyers put on a spirited defense. Their strongest argument is that you can't believe anything Mary says. They push the original police theory that John was the murderer, with Mary helping him cover up the crime and manipulating Benson so that he became the scapegoat. They admit that their client was blinded by love and not the most honorable man. However, he was a good friend of Teresa's and had no motive to murder her. A notable defense fail is that they can't produce anyone to alibi Benson on the night of the murder or the day after. Remember, he says that he took the six o'clock train back to Kansas City and had some drinks with friends that night. Doesn't it seem like that could be an easy alibi to substantiate if you really wanted to? Benson must know people at the train station and on the train. He wrote it regularly. You'd think they could find someone who could remember seeing him that night. But it was over a year later, so maybe not. As for the friends, he can only name one. And he testifies that he barely knew Benson and certainly didn't remember ever having a beer with him. They do score a few points 
If you remember, a muffler was found at what the prosecution says is the scene of the crime, along with the peanuts and candy and bloody false teeth. Mary testified that the muffler belonged to Benson. The defense calls Rosa to testify that it did not belong to her father. They also call a detective who testifies that he and the county sheriff conducted another search of the Metman place several weeks after the murder. They noticed that the cellar was suspiciously clean. Please, if you've lived in Germany, you'd expect the whole Metman place to be scrupulously clean. They also noticed that a brand new floor had been laid in the barn and the floor of the summer kitchen showed fresh repairs. Mr. Webb succeeds in shooting down the prosecution's evidence of the saw blades found at Benson's place in Kansas City by having another doctor demonstrate that the blades disintegrate when you try to saw bone with them. There is some public sentiment for the defense's arguments. John and Mary are not universally beloved by any means. Unfortunately, as it turns out, the defense must call Benson to testify in his own defense. It's really their only option at that time. He testifies in what the papers call pretty good English. The last time he saw Teresa was on the Saturday night before she disappeared. He gave her some peanuts and candy to give the grandchildren and had a pleasant conversation with her. She then went to bed and he never saw her again. He knew nothing about the murder until after the body was found. He repeats what he's been saying about his whereabouts on Sunday and Monday. He states that he only went to see Mary on Monday after he received a note requesting him to visit her. He accuses her of planting the money on him when he fell asleep after whatever they were doing that night. He did not notice the money until the next morning when he was back in Kansas City. He fled only because he realized that John and Mary were framing him for the murder. Benson does not come off well in the witness box. He appears shifty and nervous and lets the prosecutor goad him into contradicting himself and losing his temper. Partway through his cross-examination, he starts whining that he has trouble understanding English. Not a good performance. The papers describe him as a slippery, cowardly, little man. Both sides give stirring summations. Mr. Eighty hammers his original points about Benson's character determining the victim's fate. The prosecutor praises Mary for bravely owning up to the affair so that the true murderer could be caught. Keep in mind that in just a couple of years, Lizzie Borden will be found not guilty in her sensational trial. In the 1890s, it's just hard for people to believe that women commit brutal crimes. For its part, defense counsel contends that the evidence of the crime, like the false teeth and stuff, was all planted to conceal that the crime was actually committed at the Metman home. He paints Mary as a murderous liar, an adulteress, and calls her the lowest harlot on God's footstool. What a terrific insult. In spite of the defense efforts, the papers report that there is, quote, a general opinion that he has sealed his doom, unquote. They are not wrong. The jury takes only an hour to find him guilty. 
Mr. Webb, bless his heart, doesn't want to give up on Benson. He says that he has new evidence and will appeal. But the appeal is denied, and ben Benson is sentenced to hang on the 18th of June, 1891. The execution date is set for November 5th, 1891. Between the hours of 9 a.m. and 4 p.m., I always think of people being hanged at dawn, but I guess in Leavenworth, it's during business hours. It wouldn't be a public hanging. There's not very much room in the jail heart yard where the gallows sit. Mary sits in jail for a while longer and then is quietly released. Webb writes an old colleague, U.S. Supreme Court Associate Justice David Brewer who established his legal career in Leavenworth. He has three main points. The case should not have been a federal one since there's no proof that the murder occurred on Fort Leavenworth. Johanna should not have been allowed to testify because A, she's the wife of the defendant, and B, the purpose of her testimony was strictly to prejudice the jury against Benson. Mary should not have been allowed to testify because she's charged with the same murder and has every reason to lie. Brewer responds that there is merit in Webb's arguments and the execution is stayed. Webb says that he knows Benson did not participate in the murder but was forced to help in the disposal of the body. That's new. He says that, quote, at the new trial, Benson will reveal all and prove his innocence, unquote. Yeah, that doesn't happen. Nobody wants to reopen this can of worms. Most people, certainly the Metmans and the powers that be, are perfectly happy with the unsympathetic Benson's conviction. The U.S. Supreme Court decides not to intervene after all, and a new hanging date is set for late December 1892. The jail in Leavenworth where the condemned man is held is sort of a loosey-goosey operation. Benson is even housed in general population. One night, a guard is testing out the gallows, which aren't working for some reason. He discovers that the door to Benson's nearby cell is slightly ajar. When he investigates, he finds that some clothes have been arranged to make it look like the prisoner's in the bed. Oldest trick in the book, am I right? The alarm is raised, and fortunately, Benson is found hiding under another prisoner's bed. He claims it was all a joke. Later on, he tries to commit suicide by stabbing at his neck with a pin. After that, they finally put him in solitary. The execution date nears. Okay. I promise I am not making this up. December 16th, 1892, the Kansas City Star, Dateline, Leavenworth. Yesterday morning, Benson assaulted and seriously, but though not fatally, stabbed Captain Morgan the day guard, and then plunge the knife into his own breast just below his heart, inflicting fatal wounds. The knife was in the side lining of Benson's shoe. With his dying words, Benson proclaimed his innocence. Was he innocent? Do you think we have the true story? Did our victim, Teresa, receive justice? I'll share my thoughts with you, but now is when I wish there were 10 people 
here in my little recording closet to talk to about the case. So please let me know what you think. I'm thinking I may even have to write a book about this case. There was so much I could have gone into but just didn't have time. Okay, there are several possibilities. Least likely to me is that someone we don't already know about committed the murder. There was speculation that it was a Jack the Ripper type crime by a maniac who liked cutting up women. However, there were no other murders like it in Leavenworth later on. But it was a pretty mobile society at the time, so the murderer could have just hopped on a train and continued killing somewhere else. But I just don't think so. For one thing, a lot of prostitutes and bordellos and saloons were up in that area near the post and train station. Targeting one of them would be much easier and draw a lot less attention to the killer. And just like the robbery scenario, why would a maniac need to dispose of the body? It just seems very unlikely. The circumstances point to someone she knew. By the way, if you're offended by the word prostitute, please don't waste your time contacting me. You were warned. I know other podcasts apologize and use the term sex worker. I won't be doing that, and here's why. Most people who engage in sexual activity for money don't do it willingly or proudly. If you do, and you like to call yourself a sex worker, that's fine. Of course, I'd strongly recommend you find another line of work because it's incredibly dangerous. So, sorry you're offended is as close as I'll get to apologizing. Plus, I think calling prostitution sex work minimizes the plight of those who are forced into it, whether by their own choices or circumstances or human trafficking. I do promise I won't say hooker unless I'm quoting somebody else. Sorry about the ranting. I'll also say we can dismiss Henry. He's just not there the night Teresa goes missing. And imagine working on the railroad every night like he does. It's probably all he can do to get some sleep every day and drag himself off to work again. And if Henry got involved in helping get rid of the body, he's young and strong. He could easily take pieces of her body with him to work and just throw them off the train any place along the tracks. If Henry was involved, I don't think Teresa's body would ever have been found. Let's look at what the prosecution and Mary said the pl murder plot was. I'm skeptical about Benson having a very good motive, but suppose he really does want to kill Teresa that Sunday night and makes a plan to lure her, kill her, and dispose of the body. He'd want to get somewhere with no witnesses. Down by the river, late at night, seems like a great place. Shooting is quick and easy, but someone might hear the shot. If you try to stab her or strangle her, she'll scream and fight. So, hit her over the head is not a bad option. And since the Missouri River's right there, why not just roll her in and shove the body off so it floats away? That's not a terrible plan. But stuff went wrong. Maybe after the murderer hit her over the head, he wasn't sure she was dead. So he made a judgment call to shoot her to be sure. Hearing a shot was common in a place like Leavenworth in 1890. But then, how about cutting up the body? Why do that? It's possible that he couldn't lure her close enough to the river before he killed her and then maybe underestimated how hard it would be to move the body. At the trial, John testified that Mary weighed 160 pounds which is 
a lot of dead weight to move, especially for a small man like Benson. Maybe he just panicked or got scared off and thought he could come back later, cut her into small, more manageable pieces, and get rid of her that way. This is not an impossible scenario, but I just don't think it's the right one. I don't think the murder was planned or premeditated. Besides that, I just don't see a good reason for Charles to kill Teresa. Suppose Teresa really did threaten to tell Johanna about the affair. Well, from Benson's point of view, big deal. Johanna's put up with his philandering for 20 years now. I doubt she'd leave him or that he would even care if she did. There might be a big scandal, but that gives Mary a much better motive than Charles. We all know even today, the woman usually gets the worst of it in a sex scandal. Think Clinton Lewinsky, or if you're too young, Brad and Angelina. Imagine what it would have been like for Mary in 1890. Benson might be afraid Mary would dump him, and he's so obsessed with her, he can't let that happen. But it would be a lot easier to just elope with Mary and start over somewhere else pretending to be a married couple. People did it all the time in those days. Benson did it all the time. Or maybe he really does want the money and Mary. He decides to get rid of the immediate threat and kill Henry and John and his wife sometime later. Possible, but I just don't think so. I believe the murder happened out of rage. The police were not far off with their theory. Teresa got home that fateful Sunday night, and there was a bitter fight of some kind. There doesn't seem to have been serious physical violence in the Metman home, even though there was too much acceptance of that type of thing in those days. I just don't think that's what's going on with this family. I think the fights were verbal. Consider the situation. John is pushing 60. From what the neighbors say, he's stolid, outwardly unemotional, unimaginative. He likes to go to work, come home, have a quiet supper, putter around the house and the yard, drink beer, and go to bed. To sum it up, really boring to someone like Teresa. She's 10 years younger, independent, interested in lots of things outside her home and family. Imagine how stifled and discontent she feels. I can see her lashing out a lot at her husband, daughter, and grandchildren. I'm not sure whether she had a sexual affair with Benson. I kind of doubt that, but I think he was an important emotional lifeline for her. And Mary and those poor kids, it must have been like living in a powder keg. The whole family must have been desperately unhappy. It's easy to see Teresa just laying into them and saying vicious things. And she may have threatened to take all the money and leave and never come back. That kind of thing can really set people off, especially if they've been holding in their emotions for a long time. Please don't think I'm victim blaming. Obviously, Teresa didn't deserve to get murdered. But something had to give in that house. I think somebody, probably John, just snapped and hit her hard on the head or pushed her hard enough that she hit her head on something or even grabbed a pistol and shot her. The grandchildren are there, but 
I could see them sleeping through it all or huddling down under the covers, never knowing what happened. But not Mary. Either she was involved or she saw what happened and helped with the cover-up. Now, it's also possible that Benson was there too. I bet he dropped by a lot to see Mary on Sunday nights on his way back to Kansas City. Maybe the reason he could never substantiate his alibi is that he wasn't in Kansas City. He was in Leavenworth. After the trial, his lawyer did say he helped dispose of the body. Whatever happened that night, I think John and Mary were certainly involved, and it wasn't planned in advance. It's always easy to say, well, I would have done this. My first thought was, why didn't they just tie her on the horse, take her to the river, weigh her down, and drop her in that night? It seems like it's doable even with only two people. Of course, I have absolutely no idea what it would be like to be in that situation. Possibly the fight was later in the night or in the early hours of the morning. That wouldn't leave time to do anything before it got light. Maybe they were hoping Teresa would wake up or they just panicked or were in shock. Whatever happened, I think they put her in the summer kitchen and either she didn't die for a while or they could keep the body cold. The summer kitchen would be unused at that time of the year and the weather was reported to be very cold that week. Mary's at home all day so she can make sure nobody goes in there. That gives them some breathing space. And if dumping her in the river was done later in the week, it helps explain why everybody seemed to think the body was so fresh. They come up with the cover story that she's left John to go back east and live there. When she never turns up at Catherine's, they can just say she must have run into some criminal and let slip how much money she was carrying and they killed her somewhere far, far away from Leavenworth. The next day, when the panic subsided, even though it wasn't planned, I don't think John and Mary were particularly unhappy about what happened. There may even have been some sense of relief. I believe that Mary came up with the idea to have Benson get the money out of the house to support the robbery theory and to get the money. I don't buy that Benson didn't know about the money or the murder. Whether he was there when it happened or not, he knew about the murder. Together the next night, the conspirators decided to cut up the body, put the pieces in the sacks they have in the barn, and sneak out to the river. I think the gory part was done in the summer kitchen or maybe the barn. It was probably a lot harder and took more time than they thought it would. And the weather that week was rainy with some bad storms a couple of nights. So I think it took at least a couple of days. And when the boys found the body, they were just out of time. There's the question of the evidence that was found up at Fort Leavenworth. Benson's defense claimed that it was planted there by the county attorney's detectives to make it look like John had not committed the murder. It was certainly the prosecution's theory that Benson murdered Teresa there, where they found the false teeth and the other items. I believe the evidence was planted but by Mary. After father was arrested, I think she gathered up anything that might be incriminating at the house and dumped it away from the house. For the next few days, I'm sure Mary was terrified that she would be arrested too. I would be. 
The police and the press are hounding her. I suspect that she was hoping against hope that things would work out. Maybe a vagrant would be arrested. And ultimately, she could still ride off into the sunset with Charles. This is just a guess, but when Benson came home that weekend, I think he was worried sick that John and Mary would drag him into the case. He may have been hedging his bets a little, and that's why he went up to St. Joe for that week. I doubt that Charles and Mary risked getting in contact with each other then. She was being watched closely during that week, but it's possible they were planning to run away together somehow. At the very least, Benson is certainly thinking about taking off for good. It's easy to tell I don't think much of Mary. I honestly expected her to cave right away and blame her father. And I think he would have protected her. After she's arrested, she's really backed into a corner. But our drama queen came up with a dramatic story that takes the heat off her father. It was just icing on the cake that Benson fled and made himself look guilty. As time went on and she saw how things were playing out, I think Mary decided to stick to her story and keep making it even better. She's just the poor little woman led astray by the evil conniving murderer. You see it happening in the newspaper interviews and at the trial. I'm a little surprised that she was willing to abandon Benson. I wonder if she hadn't started to think maybe his great hot passion was cooling a little. The best way I can come up with to explain it is that maybe blood really is thicker than water. She threw her paramour to the wind to protect her family. It does happen. I almost feel sorry for Benson. I believe that for a while, he thinks he can still salvage the situation somehow by waiting things out. I don't think he helped John and Mary because he was madly in love with Mary. He did it because there was something in it for him. Remember, he did end up with the stolen money. But I think he overestimated his hold on Mary. And by the time he realized what Mary was doing, he couldn't think of anything to do but get out of Dodge and stay out. In some ways, I think he was a victim too but mostly of his own ego and narcissism. John retired and helped take care of the grandchildren. Mary stayed with him and Henry at the house on Dakota. Reportedly, she rarely left the house. John died in 1905 and is buried with Teresa at Mount Calvary Cemetery. If you were in Leavenworth, that's the big cemetery on Eisenhower Road. The quote on the headstone reads, May their souls rest in peace. Just FYI, their tombstone is posted on findagrave.com. That's a great website for people who like to walk through cemeteries reading grave markers, a kind of Facebook for dead people. Mary died in 1907 and was buried near her parents. After her death, Henry moved to Atchison, Kansas, and as far as I can tell, remained a bachelor all his life. There's a story in the Atchison Globe about him mourning the disappearance of his pet monkey. He is quoted, In spite of his many faults, I loved him with a long and lingering devotion. I can't imagine a man who could say that being involved in a murder, especially of his mother. In 1931, the Globe reports that his sister from New York is taking care of him and hopes to return with him 
when he's well enough to make the trip. Charles Albert Benson is buried alone at Mount Muncie Cemetery. If you know the area, that's in Lansing, not far from the Veterans Administration. Ironically, it's also not far from the Leavenworth Detention Center, a private prison which operates under a federal marshal contract. I couldn't find much in Leavenworth about his wife and daughter after his death. Poor things, I bet they left town as soon as they could. The sources for this case were the newspapers I told you about, mainly the Kansas City Star, the now defunct Leavenworth Standard, and the Leavenworth Times. I also added the link to the Atchison Globe. I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and write a review. Plus, even critical feedback is appreciated. Thanks for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts on death row. Thank <laughs> you.